I'll tell you guys, thanks for being here at our weekly podcast topic meeting. Uh, Pete, you here on the Skype call? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm dialing in live from Overthinking It headquarters here in Zurich, Switzerland. How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm cool. I'm on the bleeding edge of America. Uh, it's coming in a little, uh, little Skypey, but Mark, are you there as well? I'm atop my enormous tower in New York City. Well, guys, as we do every week, not to, not to over-explain the premise, but as we do every week, uh, we sit together and talk about the premise for the podcast this week. And I, I, uh, I think that this week, for once, we have to go with the unsurpassed and unsurpassable greatest work of literature in any language, John Milton's Paradise Lost. Not just because it is a work of the stature that it is, but because, uh, you know, Harold Bloom, our our great uh, teacher in college, died this week after a long and productive career as a, a scholar and a lover of literature. And, you know, one of the things that he used to do on the quad at Yale was he would, he would meet anyone who met him as he started crossing the quad could say any line of Paradise Lost to him, and he would continue reciting verbatim from memory uh, lines of Paradise Lost until uh, he got to the other end of the quad and, you know, bid the student farewell with, uh, you know, with a, a sort of a gnomic smile and his, his weary hangdog expression. And I, I think for that reason, as a, a commemoration of Professor Bloom, we got to do Paradise Lost this week. I don't know, Mark, what do you think? Um, I, if you want to, uh, you know, revisit something that's uh, ancient history, kind of been done to death, I mean, sure, yeah. I'd like to talk about something vital, really in the here and now. Uh, and it's just really ripe for reinterpretation. I'm talking, of course, about the Terminator franchise. I mean, when is it not a good time to talk about Terminator, right? I mean, like, take me back in time so we can talk about Terminator. Am I right, Pete? <laughs> I mean, Mark, maybe. If you'll allow me to talk uninterrupted for 20 solid minutes while I ask rhetorical questions totally out of the blue that you don't have any answers to, are you okay with that, Mark? Are you all right with that? I'm going to suggest that this week we should talk about <laughs> Dragon Ball Z. Because Dragon Ball Z, If for those of you who are familiar, as Matt was talking with Harold Bloom's The Anxiety of Influence, what's the third step in the six revisionary ratios of The Anxiety of Influence? Hello, Kenosis, which is the breaking. <laughs> and Dragon Ball Z is always about breaking and discontinuity. You've got Gohan and Gohan, right? And uh, and, and the way and the way that it is Goku, Gohan, Goten, and all it's all about the changing of generations. And what I'm saying is that if Harold Bloom, rest his soul, were on the podcast today, not only would he be supportive of us doing uh, Dragon Ball Z as our topic, I think he might actually wearily raise his hand and and extend some measure of his of his his uh, world-weary literary critical energy out into the spirit bomb that we were going to drop on pop culture today. I don't don't know, know, Matt. Yeah? I guess it leaves leaves me to make a decision here, doesn't it? What would Harold Bloom want us to podcast about the most? Well, I've only well one Matt, thing- whenever we need to make a really – whenever we talk and talk about making a decision, we eventually just inevitably leave you to do it without helping you at all. So- <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, pre-recorded from the Ordered internet. from the internet. It's, it's overthinking
ladies and gentlemen, Peter Fenzel. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you, Internet. Ah, oh, Overthinking It podcast here for the 591st episode. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that they invited me back again. You know, each time it feels like the last time, but it's the first time. Uh, and, you know, I got to say, there's only a few people who've been on more than 586 episodes of the Overthinking It podcast. And uh, I'm one of them, which means I get to join the prestigious 586 Timers Club, a gag that we will do every two or three years until the end of time. So if you walk back with me into the Overthinking It lounge, you'll see, oh, look, over there, it's it's Matt Rather. How are you doing, Matt? Pete, I am the ghost of overthinking it podcast host future (laughs) oh i love it i'm gonna put on this luxurious uh smoking jacket uh and uh matt are are you here to give us some sort of portentous bit as as the premise of this monologue diverges and doubles over itself into some sort of confused double mumbo jumbo scenario (laughs) mark my words pete I never pick up on the premise of the bit. <laughs> All right. Great to see Matt here. And I'm looking around and, uh, man, I guess, you know, it's a really exclusive club. We went back. I remember when I first joined the, the, the 20 timers club and I got to meet Natalie Baseman, which was a real joy. Cause I'd always been a big fan of hers for a long time. And I hope that they're still hanging out in that club doing awesome. stuff. Oh, look, it's Mark Lee. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? I, I'm good, Pete, but just, let me try to rephrase what you're saying in the simple language of my people and my feeble mind. Uh, this is this is a bit, right? Is that what this is? It's a bit. Is it ever not a bit? Am I telling you that right now? Right? It's a bit of this. It's a bit of that. It's a whole lot of bits. And it's uh, when you put bits together, you get bites. When you get put bites together, you get sandwiches. Right, Mark? Uh, <laughs> good one. Oh, See what right. you did there. See what you did there. So now that we've extended this joke past the point of it being funny for a really extended period of time, although probably not as long as we'll be accused of having done it in the future as people kind of inflate and look for reasons to be clever and kind of criticize what we're doing, when in fact what we're doing is probably pretty good. Good, you know, but, but everybody's like, oh, you know, the Overthinking It podcast, you know, I liked it back when it was great in the 70s when Dan Aykroyd was on it. But now, you know, it's really sold out. It's It's got embedded product placement and all this other stuff. Uh, you know, I just I just want to tell you, all, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, and we have we have our music, our surprise musical guest who will be joining us later. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, let's uh Let's get started with the podcast. What do I have to we applaud? How does this bit end? My, it, one of the things about the bits that we do is we never know how to end them properly. And they just sort of trail off until they finish. Uh, can we can we can we uh, I'm going to I'm going to call scene. Can I call scene? The, on SNL, the, uh, the SNL monologue usually ends with we've, <laughs> we have a great show for we have a great show. OK, I forgot exactly what it said because oh, because I want to say we have a great show. Billy Eilish is here, right? right. Yeah. Billy so Eilish. Stick around. Yeah. We'll Billy right Eilish back. is here. Yeah. Stick around. We'll be right back. And then okay. we cut then we cut to a uh, cut to a commercial parody have you been stuck in the literal holocaust of buying razors in a grocery store 
think this never never forget on YouTube. Yeah, no, never. Yeah, never forget. Never forget how you. Never forget how Harry's razors. They they bought the German factory. They're like stalling on the Eastern Front. It's true, literally true. Everything I'm saying. Um, We watched some SNL uh, this week. Pete was nice enough to curate a uh, a playlist for us of of maybe half a dozen. SNL sketches from the current season and and we watch them we all have experience watching SNL I, I don't know about you guys I don't really watch it uh, anymore and Mark I, I have a feeling you're the same you catch it on YouTube from time to time I watch it quite a bit oh on really YouTube. on yeah, YouTube yeah, yeah. but Pete yeah. you're, you're like into it on a week by week basis still yeah I say still I want- as though the, the natural etiology the natural telos of this would be for you to like not be but uh, you're you're into it I got back into it because for me, the ritual of watching Saturday Night Live sketches late at night on Saturday and in the morning and early afternoon on Sunday has become a rather convenient and nice way to interact with it. And, I, and it far, far, far easier and better for me than to watch it actually live on Saturday night where I'm usually doing something else. So I think, Mark, you're probably in the same boat with me on this, right? Like you end up consuming most of it over the Internet. Uh, absolutely. All of it. Yeah, I haven't yeah. watched Saturday Night Live on live broadcast television since like the early aughts. Right, right, say. right. Yeah, and so, just as a, as a side note, like uh, SNL uh, was like very precious about putting their stuff on digital. I think there were like there was a long period where Yahoo was an exclusive digital distributor uh, distributor of SNL content, and we all know how well that went. And they finally a few years ago they relented and they just like went all in on YouTube. Uh, I think very much to everyone's benefit, right? Yeah, because now there's this huge, deep well of Saturday Night Live sketches you can watch on YouTube, and you and you can catch up on all the years that you missed, like the Bill Hader years, which all of us missed probably, right? Which ended up in retrospect, you know, now knowing that Bill Hader is 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 works on these genius projects, we can go back and watch his old Vincent Price impressions and be like, okay, I know why I didn't watch this when it was on TV, but now that I can watch it on YouTube, I'm very much enjoying it. Yeah, for yeah, sure, exactly. and it's it's also like it, they are. I what is the the term? They are snackable, right? Because it's yeah. funny you said the bits add up to bites. And the bites add up to a sandwich, but I'm not sure. Is SNL a sandwich? I'm not sure uh, mm-hmm. that that it actually is. I mean, I, I guess the show has an identity that's sort of based on the casts, right? That's right. that's based on the the particular eras. Like, what are we in? What era are we in? Are we in like the? You called it a couple things, Pete. One, the post Horatio Sands era. Well, we're way past Horatio Sands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, this, past, that, the, the post Bobby Moynihan era is, I think, what I call oh, it. Oh, not Horatio mm-hmm. Sands. Bobby Moynihan. Yeah. Who does same uh, difference, right? This, well, this is the Kate McKinnon era. We're in the sure. Kate McKinnon era right yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, are we? We might be in the late Kate McKinnon era. Uh, you know, we might be in the mid Kate McKinnon. I mean, it's tricky because. Because you could call it the Keenan Thompson era, but the Keenan Thompson era has been like almost 20 years at this point, right? He's yeah, been a, right. Yeah. So, so it's sort of like in, in Saturday Night Live in particular, well, we're, really, we're not looking at a sandwich. We're looking at a kind of uh, mosaic of traditions that pass from year to year with some degree of change. But almost it seems like now the show is less of a coherent whole than it even used to be and is more a series of parts, which is maybe why – YouTube is maybe that's part of what maybe that's because I watch it on YouTube. Maybe that's part of why YouTube is such a great medium for it. But it's like if you like Weekend Update, you can watch Weekend Update, which has separate producers. Right. And it's sort of a separate show that's nested in the middle. If you want the political sketches. Right. You can you can watch just the political sketches. And those have their sort of own ritualism to them, which we can talk about also a little bit later. Um, Every piece of it is sort of a bigger 
and I necessarily would say better, but like higher production value, very tightly and kind of well-crafted portion of the show that gets put out there every week. But the individual pieces are somewhat different. I would say from the comedic stylings, we're very firmly, I mean, Kate McKinnon is probably the biggest talent on the show right now. I think if you, if you, if you attribute talent to people as a kind of attribute that they have, um, and uh, and I mean, I guess even though it's funny, I watched Kate McKinnon. Uh, there's a great episode of uh, Oh gosh, what is that? Uh, it's a Netflix show. Um, I'm going to stall while I Google this real fast. Um, she went did a show called uh, Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, yeah. which is a Netflix show with David Chang and, and Kate McKinnon. And he takes celebrities different parts of the of the of the world and and eats food with them, right? And and they ask the celebrity where they want to go, what would be meaningful for them. And Kate McKinnon uh, was asked and was basically like named a whole bunch of random countries in Central Asia, like Kyrgyzstan. Right? Like take me to Kirk, let's eat food in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and eventually they settled on Cambodia. And I say all this because Kate McKinnon and David Chang go to Cambodia and they're eating all this food in Cambodia. And you get the sense that she's sort of like did it because just the idea of picking this country that she said is because a country that no preconceived notions, right, uh, uh, from Americans. I don't know what to expect there. But when when he, he has he's sitting down and he asks Kate McKinnon, it's like, do you ever worry what's going to happen when you're not, you know, as as overwhelmingly funny as you are now? And she's like, of course. You know, and he's like, well, when do you think that's going to happen? And she said two years ago. Right. Um, and that's why I bring it up, which is that, like, um, this current cast of Saturday Night Live has been around for a long time. Um, and I think I think would even venture to say this might be the most experienced cast of Saturday Night Live that it's ever had. I mean, in terms of net number of years, there were like long running Saturday Night Live people we think of as mainstays that were only on for six or seven years. And now there's a bunch of people who have been on that long, I believe, right? Even Pete Davidson at this point has been on Saturday Night Live for a while, and he was the youngin when he got started. Hmm. So, but but anyway, that that's what I would say. I would say that it's, we've moved through the period where SNL was kind of bringing on this sort of separate uh, video sketch teams. And the last one that they did was uh, uh, uh Beckett and Kyle Mooney, right? Um, and a good neighbor, uh, right? And then, and then they've sort of fully integrated into Saturday Night Live, and they have their sort of own angle. Um, you could call it, you could call it also the cut for time era because every Saturday Night Live episode has a segment that they make that's kind of extra and that maybe goes on the air and maybe doesn't. And, and so they they're very self conscious about the fact that some of the things go on YouTube, some of the things are for the mainstream audience. It's very subdivided in in, in that way. Um, I mean, that, so yeah, that but, sort I mean, of feeds yeah. into the internet consumption, internet consumption model, right? Like, cause if the idea, you know, if, if the idea is that the show is an organic sort of 90 minute whole, I shouldn't say organic, a tightly integrated 90 minute whole, um, then, then there actually is some, you know, truth to like the, oh, you know, early, the, like the cold open, the post, uh, the first musical guest, the kind of middle stretch post update. And then the really late, like, you know, what is it? 1am, uh, right portion portion of the show where it's just like uh crazy you know just weird crazy stuff goes up like uh i think this this week it was the choir outfits it was like 
Chance the Rapper was the host this week, and they did a show where they did a, a sketch where it was just like two, you know, dowdy Midwestern ladies uh, saying silly things about show choir outfits. Um, yeah, yeah. And that was like uh, uh, the kind of the late thing that could not could not go on at eleven thirty, but had to be, you know, had to be at one in the morning. But if it's all, you know, it's all the same. It's all a kind of undifferentiated stream of content. And the, the sort of the the YouTube area uh, is interesting because as it does with albums, um, as Spotify does with as streaming does with albums, as playlists in general do, um, they turn quote-unquote content into this undifferentiated stream, right? Into this kind of completely fungible, time-filling, you know, it's, it's almost like an abstract capability of moderate attention holding, you know? And that's, uh, that sort of becomes what SNL is about like and and so like uh, something like a kind of slack moment a sl- there there's a lot of SNL that has like a slack 30 to 90 seconds in the development section of of the sketch and like you can just move the little slider along for those now you know you don't have to you don't have to suffer through those the way you would if you're you know 17 or 24 or whatever and you're like in front of the TV on on Saturday night um by yourself so like the the effect is I don't know. Do you feel like I mean, does, do you feel like this has an effect on the meaning of the show? Do you feel like this has an effect on the quality of the show or on the kind of the post, you know, the the author is dead type of narrativization that we can bring to it as viewers? I would disagree with the idea that it's undifferentiated. I would instead say that, like, well, what I would suggest is that. If you look through, say, the Saturday Night Live YouTube channel, one of the things that you might notice is, like, say, for example, uh, looking at the episode that aired with, um, uh, gosh, which, uh, what was the, well, what's the, the woman, the, um, I really should know this. Uh, the Phoebe Waller-Bridge is her name. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge hosted a couple of weeks ago, and if you look at the sketches that ran there is a huge actually there's a she got a lot of views on a lot of the sketches that are up there but there are sketches that are in the millions right and there's weekend update segments that are in the millions and then there are ones that are down in like the half millions or so um and i'm trying to and then and so what you're seeing and then if you look at the chance the rapper one that just came out this week everything's in the kind of hundreds of thousands now that might just be according to time but i also think that what it's talking about is that the audience, first of all, the audience sees these more gradually. But second of all, there are pieces that stick out. Um, and, and it's it's much more of a kind of hit maker show, I think, in the sense that the thing it's looking to create moments that either go viral or catch on. And it throws a lot of stuff at the screen. And there's a, there are there is some filler because it's a sketch show. Right. And like not every sketch is always going to be gold. But you, you effort to put things on that are good. But like, you know, um, if uh, if you look at the um, Woody Harrelson episode, there's uh, there's a two weekend update segments, one with Bailey Gizmert, which is a sort of teen girl character uh, who's supposed to talk about culture. And that's got about nine hundred sixty six thousand views. And then there's Pete Davidson on sexually transmitted diseases, which I'm on like minutes, a moment after and has two million views. Right. And it's like, oh, OK, Pete Davidson has heat. Right. Uh, that like this, you go and see the latest thing that Pete Davidson did, right? Uh, the the Kyle the Kyle Mooney video, uh, dads, right? The wacky kind of like retro '90s music video that they did a few weeks ago uh, has 931,000 views online, which is like not on the particularly high side, 
but uh, if you look at the um, the the what the recaps of every Chad ever, which is a sort of pastiche that they that they released, uh, you know, on the same week between weeks with all this Pete Davidson stuff and a 2.4 million views. Right. So it's sort of like not I guess what I'm saying is that every piece of Saturday Night Live is no longer watched equally or exposed equally. And the parts of it that seem like they're kind of just a sketch show that's pretty good are glossed over. And they are. And I, I agree when you're saying that they are skippable, but I would disagree in the sense that they're undifferentiated. Oh, um, sure. Fair, fair enough. I, I yeah, think yeah. The, what I mean is undifferentiated in the sense that all quote unquote content becomes undifferentiated in a Spotify playlist, you know, that is to say the playlist has an identity more than I think the individual songs has an identity. My, like my chill vibes playlist, Mm -hmm. like can have, can really have any of a large number of, of chill vibes. And, and to, to a certain extent, you never go to YouTube and just watch Saturday night live, right? Like there's always something else that has to, that has to sort of creep in there though. I guess maybe the algorithm, maybe they've, they've done a deal with, with Google or something so that the algorithm, um, just reflects uh, Saturday Night Live videos for your like continuous watching, um, you know, high snackability experience. So that that like uh, so that it becomes a Saturday Night Live watching session. But I, I uh, to me, it's more being on a platform along other kinds of short form content like this rather than uh, you know rather than undifferentiated in and of themselves. Though, like as you say, they're differentiated now by different sorts of by different sorts of criteria, as you. Say, who has heat on them or like what is a sexy premise or like what is a you know um good good host or something something like that right it's a it is it it has affected the the you know at least the the landscape it has it's yeah. altered the landscape it, a little bit if we're talking about how snl sketches are differentiated from each other <clears throat> i think like a big one that's relevant to everything we're talking about here are the pre-recorded stuff versus the actual live yes things, yes yes yeah right and um I guess you could argue that you know nothing is live when you're watching it the next morning on YouTube, um, and, and what I think that does is it really I my personal sense is that it takes the truly live sketches and puts them to the background and really foregrounds the pre-recorded stuff, which is higher production value and feels more of a piece with like the Key and Peele Chappelle uh, pre-recorded sketch comedy that uh, what over the last like 15 years or so that seemed to innovate beyond the SNL formula. At least that's my take. Mm. What do you guys think? It is funny that it's, uh, they talk about it more as SNL, right? SNL seems more like the brand than Saturday night live. Mm. Uh, cause, cause there's, it has so many other roles in it. I would say that to stand out, one of the live sketches has to do more because the pre-recorded things are so polished for sure. Um, well like, yeah. So, so I mean, let's, let's take an example, right? So, cause we, we have a sort of selection of sketches that we've watched to prepare for this. Um, and do we want to talk about the big one that really promoted and provoked this whole conversation? Like this whole reason that we want to talk about the, uh, Saturday Night Live this week that, that kept, got us going. Is it, is it time to bust that one out? Yeah. I think jump right I, to it. I think yeah, so. Let's, let's jump right in to it. Great. So, so I recommend it to everybody and we all had watched it anyway, cause it's absolutely delightful. Uh, David Harbour hosted a great episode of Saturday Night Live two weeks ago. And one of the elements of it is a, is a movie trailer, a fake movie trailer for a gritty retelling of the origin story of Oscar the Grouch called Grouch, right? And it's modeled heavily after, 
Joaquin Phoenix's Joker movie. I think they even go to some of the same live locations, right? It, it's filmed in a similar style. It has similar set pieces. And, and it's all about kind of a garbage man who looks around his town and sees trash and decides that he's going to, like, go through this metamorphosis where he paints his face green and hides inside a trash can naked and just tells people to scram, right, when they come up and try to talk to him, right? So it's this, and it's it's actually, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, right now, it's, it's sitting pretty at 6.1 million views on YouTube. YouTube, uh, making it by far the most watched Saturday Night Live sketch of the of the season um, this so far. And uh, we're we're pretty much only going to be talking about sketches from this season because there's so many sketches to talk about if you go farther back. But this is so far. uh, The only close one is Woody Harrelson's DNC Town Hall cold open at five point eight million. But this is the most watched Saturday Night Live piece at six point one million is the Grouch Joker parody. And so, like, I guess I'll float to you guys. What was your reaction when you watched it? Well, just like appreciating the technical mastery of it and how it was a mm-hmm. pitch perfect uh, parody of the Walking Phoenix Joker uh, piece, mm-hmm. right? The the aesthetics, they absolutely nailed it. The look and the feel. We have this like entire gritty Sesame Street world, which is recreated. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, just a, a excellent, excellent effect. Um, even down to the music, right? Um, they nailed that piece where there's this, like very dramatic strings, uh, cinematic swelling version of the Sesame Street theme song, um, which just you have to hear it to, to, to fully appreciate it. It's, it's like uh, it, you couldn't have asked for a better version of that thing. Right. And SNL presumably like conceived of it and and shot it and did it all within the course of a week. It wasn't live, but still it was like pretty fresh off of mm. the, uh, the, the the digital deck. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean that, that's that's definitely true. It's, it's something there about the kind of the democratizing of, um, you know, we've come a long way from Lazy Sunday, right? In terms of what can be done with a digital camera and a couple of crew people in, you know, uh, in a few days. I, I mean, I wonder if they were planning it for for longer than that when they knew that David Har. Do, do we say Harbour? Is that is oh, that, is it Harbour? I thought I no, I don't know. I've never heard the man's name spoken aloud by anyone <laughs> by anyone who's consulted with him personally. So, uh, but he did uh, give a monologue at the beginning of his episode of Saturday Night Live where he said his own name, but I still can't remember what is how he said it. <laughs> so you'll have to check that up and leave us a note in the comments about it. Um, so the the but like yeah, maybe maybe they were planning that before but it also like i i don't know i felt like it touched on some some of the kind of more ridiculous absurdity of the joker theme right like the the idea of of an origin story a super villain origin story of like who is a villain right because if 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 oscar the grouch is the joker then the joker is sort of oscar oscar the grouch right like i don't know do you want to know how i got these trash can lids uh the the whole the whole thing had this like deflating uh, aspect which seemed appropriate at the time given the the very overheated um you know discourse drink in the culture uh about the the joker movie and how it was gonna you know i don't know do do all kinds of terrible things to to all kinds of innocent people right and i guess like uh, yeah do you guys feel like uh to, to what extent was the sketch pushing boundaries or being particularly provocative i asked this with the context um put before i'll put out the context that SNL is like by and large playing for a very mainstream audience, um, but it knows that it has to um, find out where that edge is of comfortability and like ride that uh, very precarious boundary 
um, so that it, it still feels like something like that's fresh and a little bit um, dangerous, right? Appealing to that 14 year old boy. Like we were all once and like, you know, feeling taboo to, to stay up late to watch this thing that was like a little bit inappropriate. So like, to what extent do you feel like that applies to this sketch? Um, I think that um, it's it definitely has it has it has elements that you would think would be taboo, such as, you know, Ernie saying the B word, as it were, um, which they did just introduce a bill in here in the state house in Massachusetts to make it illegal to say the B word. So we'll see if that actually gets passed. Yeah. Um, you know what has something to say about that? Our free speech <laughs> podcast from last week. <laughs> I thought you were going to say weekend update from this past week, where they said you'll only be allowed to say to somebody wearing a Yankee hat. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's uh, but yeah, like you know, the the count is addicted to pain pills, right? And like Snuffleupagus is a pimp. Um, but it's all there's there's all done with a level of perf- of self conscious performativity that is that makes it like well yeah this is obviously like a pimp parody of Snuffleupagus you can tell he's not actually like violent we're we're being very we're being removed several degrees away from the harsh gritty reality of even as we're actually confronting like fairly head on a, a kind of grounded portrayal of Oscar the Grouch as a kind of deranged disgruntled garbage man we are not looking at Snuffleupagus up against as an actual pimp he is a kind of uh superfly parody spoof pimp uh right and and ernie and bert as a sort of gay couple where ernie gets stabbed in the alley are, are spoofy also and and so i guess what i would say is part of what makes it mainstream is that it it does it does it's generous with the release of tension it, it builds a lot of tension but it's generous with kind of discharging it and letting it go and saying like, yeah, you know, the count is addicted to pain pills, but we're not going to go too deep in that. You know, we're going to touch that joke and then and then we're going to and it's going to be so silly that you're going to be alleviated of having to actually consider the opioid crisis in the context of this. Right. Yeah. It's, whereas uh, something like Key and Peel would just like really lean into that and make you very uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. You could have made that a lot. You could make that Dark Sesame Street. You could have made the joke about Dark Sesame Street a lot more uncomfortable. But what they were really focusing on here, I think, was the idea that it is funny that a character like the Joker, who is a clown that robs banks, right, is like this this intense character study, uh, as well as a you know a character from childhood television, uh, and the idea that well if we juxtapose it and we kind of heighten like we talked about in our Stuart Lee podcast, right, like overstatement for comic effect of the idea that a gritty Joker story is an over serious retelling of a silly child. TV show clown character, right? Like, um, like let's take that up a notch by making it Oscar the Grouch, but let's not get, take everything as that, that far. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, I guess for me, the, the sketches but where, then, sorry, let me, uh, let me, let yeah. me squeeze in before you, before you move on. Right. Like the, the, um, you know, what, uh, is actually the best dark Sesame street. It's like the first what? three seasons of Sesame street. Yes, uh, yes. Right. Where like Oscar the Grouch is an actual sociopath and and like uh, and Cookie Monster is an actual drug addict and like, all, you know, all of these things. It was, you know, before kind of appropriateness, before our when when our ideas of what was an OK thing to depict or ideas about representation, let's say, uh, were different. I think if you looked back at, at Old Sesame Street, which I did once encouraged by an article I read on the Internet, I found some like grainy postage stamps 
style video in the early days of blogs. And I was shocked at how, like, uh, how, you know, it was not this sort of sanitized kind of safe space for children. It was actually, you know, a, a thing. It was actually a thing that was supposed to ha- help, like, city children, like urban children, uh, by which I don't just mean black children, but them too, um, like, uh, come to terms with the, what their cities looked like if they didn't look like sort of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, if they weren't like, you know, white picket fence, suburban, uh, you know, idols, um, 1950s style fantasy places. The, uh, the, the original concept of Sesame Street was to kind of give a representational language to, to that, to sort of realities of like living in um, urban areas. And that, that uh, I don't know, so, sorry, little, uh, little detour there but um but very interesting very interesting that this like this idea of like gritty sesame street was actually sesame street for a hot second yeah it is interesting yeah back Um, to you oh yeah sure so i mean we can we can touch more on the grouch but in terms of answering mark's question i feel like uh what is sort of the, the the relationship that saturday night live has with being edgy is perhaps most interrogated in their big cameo filled political uh, cold open sketches that they do these days. Right. The cold open on Saturday Night Live has become almost like a debutante ball of people looking to make particular sorts of political statements. But and also, they, they, you know, they're highly produced. They've got big stars in them. And you get to see the figure, the news and the, the characters in the in the news of the week portrayed by people that you recognize. And 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 it's exciting. Right. And so. The one that I I point out for everybody is the one actually I think it was from that same episode um, where, uh, oh, gosh, um, what's his name? I keep blanking on his name. Uh, Yeah, there's too many Billies. There's Billy Eilish and there's Billy Porter in the same episode. Billy Porter uh, did a sort of drag racy intro like drag racing narration of the inclusion town hall that the democrats did right where everybody was competing to see who could get the uh, affection of gay people the most right and then lgbtq people and that was kind of the joke that each person came out and tried to demonstrate for all the gay people how down with the gays they were uh and and that, that was sort of the parody um and so this is on one hand it's you know it's transgressive because you have in this one you know uh a uh, a serious presidential contender doing an impression of a literal drag queen by taking her wig off and Kate McKinnon, you know, again stealing the show, spilling the rose petals down her face in in, in a in a drag show reference. Um, but at the same time, it's also a gathering of friends, right? There's the sense that people who are watching it are like minded, which I think is different a different relationship with offense and edginess than the idea before, which would be. It's a mainstream show that occasionally pushes the kind of mutually agreed upon boundaries of taboo. It is now kind of like an in-group show that pushes against its outgroups to an extent. Not always. It does kind of, you know, twist and shout on that a little bit and it gets edgy in other ways. But these big performative cult opens seem largely to be very, very finely tuned and crafted as to like what taboo they push and why. And kind of who is depicted in what way. And yes, everybody gets made fun of, uh, but but not necessarily equally and not necessarily in the same way. Um, I mean, I don't know. How do you – I almost I almost skip over these a lot of the time because it's almost like a different show. Yeah, it's not, uh, it, it, it's not really my jam. Actually, this, this is an interesting thing. I'm, I'm finding more and more uh, as I age that like I, I encounter stuff that is just not for me, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and I think that like – 
this is something I've heard Merlin Mann say on on uh, his twenty or thirty podcasts that he does. Uh, but like. I, I think it should be okay just to say, you know, that's not for me. Like, I can mm-hmm. recognize virtues in it. I can, like, I guess analyze it from my own point of view or within the context of, of whatever I bring to the table. But, like, either because, like, it wasn't – I'm not the target market or else because I just don't care for it particularly much. Like, that's that, that's just not for me. And, like, in, in you know, the, the great triumph of social media is to for everyone to – treat themselves like they're a 24-hour news network and you have to have like breaking updates all the damn time about like everything you have to have like a take you know uh it it does seem like a slightly radical or transgressive way of opting out to say oh that yeah i'm sure it's fine it's just not for me and and like that's how i want to let go of a lot of the political stuff on snl now this this may also be because it's been done better in other places right like uh uh the daily show took weekend update and and perfected it sort of went beyond weekend update in terms of what it could do and now there are like 17 or 18 daily shows on uh the various uh, various cable networks or various youtubes or what you know however you various streaming apps however you get them um like that that uh that could could be with it too and so without us necessarily a governing identity right without being a thing that lasts more than five minutes um you know, or the the kind of the idea of topicality, and even that, right? What is topicality if you have to wait till Saturday to see it? You know, I mean, some. You know, but when something interesting happens in the world, you know, the teenagers have put up like fifty or sixty thousand TikToks commenting on it before. Uh, you know, the SNL writers have had a chance to sharpen their pencils, and so our idea, our idea of the cadence of these sorts of things, are uh, is uh, has sort of changed. And unless you're going to go John Oliver and be really academic. I don't know what the I don't know what the identity of these things are, and I guess for that reason and among others, they just are not for me. You know. Yeah, I, I the sense that I'm getting is that these political cold opens um, feel have this sort of institutional quality to them, by which I mean like Alec Baldwin plays Trump. It's on NBC. Um, they they don't get as edgy as they could possibly be. I mean, they rock right up. To, to the line of in this particular this, uh, for this past week, you know, saying like, you know, if Trump is a uh, Trump supporters or white supremacists. They walk right up to that line. They don't go over it. But the whole thing feels, I, I think, the point we're making here is, uh, in a in a safe spot where they can make fun of the president, but they don't go too far. And I guess my, my overall sense is like because it feels institutional, it feels inadequate. Because, well, a lot of some institutions these days feel inadequate. That's that's it might feel a little harsh to call it inadequate, um, but institutional maybe is a better way to, to work to land on for me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it is institutional, right? Because these are also really popular, uh, right? And that um, that lots and lots of people gather together to experience this. But it definitely feels like a ritual that, that a lot of people are participating in uh, and that this is the sort of core looking outward, not like the fringe looking in, I guess is how I would say. Right. Is that, a, is that dovetail with what you're saying, Mark? Or are you talking about yeah, something in a different direction? That, that, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Maybe this is a good segue to talk about the, the soul cycle sketch. Yeah. I love the soul cycle sketch. Yeah. Totally. And, and well, well, my, my uh, Pete, I'd be curious to hear you expand on that topic, but like, again, this sort of, uh, uh, 
the the tension balancing the tension between the edge versus the the mainstream. Um, well, is SoulCycle mainstream? I, I, it's, it's a very popular thing, of course, but like uh, I, I'm in my urban bubble here, and uh, I think of SoulCycle as something like you know for wealthier urbanites. Uh, that I don't know, maybe it doesn't, uh, it's something a little bit foreign to, um, to the suburbs or people who are just kind of outside of my little, my little bubble. Um, is, is SoulCycle mainstream? Like is, is when SNL does, does SoulCycle, are they putting that out there, um, as something that everyone will at least get the reference? I feel like SNL does have a characteristic these days as being from New York, and that they seem to have embraced it in a self-conscious way that they haven't necessarily always had to embrace it before. Maybe maybe they're doing it on purpose. Maybe they're not. I'm not sure. But uh, there have definitely been a number of sketches this season that are slice of life sketches about being from New York and in particular being kind of like the people who are on Saturday Night Live, as if the sort of identity of the people who are performing the show has become relevant to the show in a way that it wasn't previously, uh, which I think is kind of encouraging. I mean, I suspect the SoulCycle sketch is a product placement. I would think that SoulCycle probably paid to be hmm. on that. Wow. Uh, that, I mean, that's that's not crossed my mind at all. But OK, now I mean, it's say, possible, it's right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's it seems like that that they probably do something that which I don't particularly think is terrible. I mean, they do make fun of SoulCycle a fair amount there. Right. And uh, but but nothing that's like a dagger. Uh, but I would say that there, there's this good sketch about apple picking. Right. Which makes fun of the fact that people drive a long distance outside of New York City to go apple picking in upstate New York, which is not an experience that's shared universally across the country. People who aren't from New York City aren't going to understand the joke about driving outside of New York and seeing Confederate flags in upstate New York. It's very specifically located in New York. But I don't necessarily it seems to me like New York, that uh, Senate Live is kind of seeing that as a feature rather than a bug. That this is kind of a new that with part of what they're showing is a New York experience and the New York experience is exciting and New York experience is fun. And and if they don't speak to that authentically, then they're kind of even less uh, connected to their audience than they might be. Um, I think that Soul Cycle now and this kind of exercise now is much more broadly available than just in New York, though, and, and, and in big cities. I think that I mean, how many branches now does Soul Cycle have across the country? Right. It's uh, how, let's we're just going to quickly Google Soul Cycle locations. How many? <laughs> how many Soul Cycles? Um, it has. Uh, oh man. Um, it has eighty. Oh, it only has. It only has 88 locations. I thought it was much more than that. Really? Huh. That's really interesting. Um, nearly 100 studios in the United States, Canada, United Kingdom. Although there are a lot of competing spin studios and a lot of other gyms that now have spin classes. Right. Because they're modeled like, after SoulCycle. Yeah. Right. Right. And I've actually attended. So the SoulCycle sketch on Saturday Night Live is an is a instructor auditioning session. Um, and I actually kind of wish we had a particular overthinking it member with us today because I actually mm-hmm. attended Ryan Sheely's spin class instructor audition class, <laughs> which he did for a local spin chain called Bespoke uh, here in Boston. 
Um, and it was a lot. It wasn't necessarily exactly like the sketch, obviously, because there's like less monologuing and stuff. And but this idea that it's kind of a CNB scene of the instructors kind of giving you a taste of their personality while also kind of giving making the case why they should be instructors. That's a real thing that happens, and it happens in places other than New York City. Wait, what did he What did um, he play? What was Ryan's playlist? <laughs> Ryan's play Ryan's playlist, and he'll tell you about this. Uh, Ryan went to a lot of trouble to curate his playlists, in particular the hip hop that he used um, and the hip hop remixes that he used and mashups because obviously one of the challenges of making a playlist, not maybe not obviously one of the challenges of making a playlist for a spin class is that your primary consideration is the tempo, right? The number of beats per minute, because you want it to correspond to the number of times that the pedal stroke happens and the cadence of the biking and cadence is a really important concept in spin class and biking in general, right? Training on bicycles, um, cycling, I should say. So Ryan was, putting his playlists on Spotify when he was building them, but then he was finding the other instructors were stealing them. <laughs> and so in order to protect his own playlist, he was like taking them private. I think they might've even been on SoundCloud at some point, but, uh, but Ryan was, was, I mean, again, not in a cruel way, just in a way of like, he puts a lot of work into it. He wants to premiere his playlist at his class. He doesn't do this anymore. I don't think. Um, but, uh, but definitely like he had some good jams and then I appreciated it. Um, but I mean, this Soul Cycle sketch is kind of about uh, the notion that these kinds of classes, if even if it isn't Soul Cycle specifically, but I mean, I'm involved in CrossFit here and there, right? Even a little bit here and there, and that's another sort of dimension of this degree of kind of elite fitness classes that are about uh, is sort of self consciously about motivating otherwise sedentary urban workers, right? To uh, to to this sort of sense of physicality and kind of uh physical striving right um which is not really usually a part of uh of the things that they have to do to survive but are more the things that they have to do to look sexy um and the idea that you're sort of superficially trying to inspire people with things that are kind of like forced or inappropriate or like the, the people who are trying to to inspire you are mostly there because they're really good at cycling and maybe don't have a really good handle on Indian colonial history and shouldn't be talking about Gandhi, right? Like that kind of stuff resonated a tiny bit with some of the classes like this sort that I've been to over the years, though not necessarily at bespoke. I mean, do you guys go to exercise classes like this? You know, experience. I, I've, I've been to a spin class uh, before. It's it's not my thing, right? As, yeah. as Matt was saying before, it's not for me, but I know I'm aware of the general cultural oeuvre around it. And we should talk about the new agey, ...ness of it and how that's represented in this sketch, right? Yeah. Um, there's this, this, I think you mentioned, there's someone mentions Gandhi. Um, there's this, you know, talk about like, you know, uh, removing negativity from, from your, from your life. And then there's a candle as well, right? Which yeah, is yeah. a really nice, <laughs> nice, nice button at the end. So just for those who are not, are not aware, I think this is a real thing in, if not soul cycle and other spin classes, like the instructor puts a candle on someone's bike for someone who's doing well or needs the motivation no, or, or is being oh, recognized. Is that, is that how the candles? I don't know. I've, there are candles in a soul cycle class. I have been to soul cycle classes. I spin at my gym. I just use the, you know, the, the white labeled spin classes. Um, but that, uh, you know, without going to a, to a special like branded, uh, spin experience. And 
and it's a little less dialed down on the on the spirituality though like they do talk about like goal setting and like you know the the sort of the head game of exercise and trying to like not let your mind give up before your body gives up on on certain kinds of tasks and that that does get a kind of a, a, a cultish or a sort of guru like flavor to it uh a lot of the time and and um yeah, but but less so. I mean, I think Soul Cycle is. But like, is this is it a is it a target that has to be gone after right now? Right? Like, it seems like it seems to me that like the the hot take on Soul Cycle has to do with the fact that their their investors are Trump supporters or something, right? Like, and it's almost it's almost like this is this is the thing that like would make me think, oh, that this is product placement. Like, oh, can you do a can you do a um, can you do a sketch about Soul Cycle that makes whatever sins of Soul Cycle there are seem, you know, tiny, seem insignificant, rather than, uh, rather than, hey, this is something that we actually might consider boycotting for, for political reasons, right? Like because the wow. the power to make ridiculous, right? Or the, it, it's a power to defang, you know, and and this is why you know Jimmy Fallon got some some uh, flack, rightly for. For uh, you know his his embrace of of Donald Trump during the campaign, you know, and not tre- treating him like a, treating him like just a figure of fun rather than taking seriously some of the things um, that that he was saying at the time. Like this uh, interesting interesting thing. I mean, this is this is super deep into conspiracy, but I, I guess the Soul Cycle product placement was sort of corporate PR, right? We don't have to uh, to take the conspiracy angle necessarily. That's a very interesting idea, and that's one I hadn't thought of. Um, but like, okay, so this this notion of ridicule, right? Um, the 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 if there is a target of ridicule in this sketch, it's the instructors, right? Um, mm. But I guess it's arguable that they are truly being ridicule, ridiculed, or if you would call it something else, right? They're being gently mocked, lightly mocked. Um, is it punching up in, in that way that we like to talk about uh, humor being effective uh, because they are in, notionally in in positions of authority, even though like these are not like you know particularly high paid or really like truly powerful people? Who, like what 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 is the ridicule? Yeah, is there ridicule going on? Who's here? the target and what like it's it's interesting because people like making fun of Soul Cycle instructors is all well and good, but people pay a premium, you know, like to the tune of like double the price of what you can get spin for elsewhere. I mean, what you can get an equivalent calorie burn for elsewhere, though, I, you know, I don't know, maybe facilities or like, you know, nicer locker rooms or something, but the, the, the people pay a premium for this experience. So like, it's all well and good to kind of laugh and, and to, to, to like titter and point fingers a little bit at the ridiculous, uh, soul cycle instructors who are, who are saying, um, vapid things like guys this morning, I Googled racism and it was bad. Let's hit the bikes. You know, that, that. Yeah. Sort of stuff. But like that that's sort of what the people that's what the people are there for. Like that that wouldn't exist if a market for it didn't exist. There's also a kind of a, a B plot in the the sketch with like uh, a creepy white man w- who is um, quasi harassing his uh, soul cycle uh, is more familiar with soul cycle black woman colleague uh, and the the white guy's like there for the first time he's terrible at spin and is like also sort of creepily creepily uh, talking to her in in a couple of different ways 
So yeah, yeah. The the target isn't. If, if you want to say who is it punching at, I would say that it's punching at a decadent and unconcerned, luxury-oriented urban culture, right? Of people who spend a lot of money on fancy exercise classes that are that are that are sort of oblivious to the kind of more urgent and pressing problems of the real world. I mean, like what are, what are the what are the real world problems that are that are brought up in the Soul Cycle class that are then dismissed? Other than I guess the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which is which is something that is, uh, <laughs> I guess I guess that just sort of shows a kind of lack of connection to current events and whatnot. But yeah, like like racism, colonialism, political violence, right? Um, gay, gay racism, as Bo yeah, and Yang exactly. eloquently said. Yeah, exactly. And and Bo and Yang, of course, uh, who who is awesome, and it's great to see him on the show. Uh, I got to be on his podcast back in March of this past year on Let's Culture Yeah, really? yeah. I, I don't know. I, I was looking for the episode. I don't know. Maybe it didn't actually. It was a live performance of a podcast of his. So it occurs to me that maybe the podcast didn't actually go in their archives, but I performed in his uh, I don't think so, honey, um, uh, uh, bit, which is part of the Las Culturistas, sort of a running gag in Las Culturistas, where they go to a particular place and have comedians come on and kind of dismissively talk down at a topic that they are tired of. Um, and I and there's you have an option to take a, a an idea out of a hat and rant about it for a couple minutes. And I ended up picking out of the hat and got intermittent fasting, which ironically enough, kind of related to this soul cycle sketch, right? This, this idea of like, um, I think it was what, I don't want to look at pictures of the things that I'm, that I am not going to eat. Or like, I don't want to hear about you not eating the things that I'm going to feel bad about eating later. Right. It's just so this like relationship between, I mean, in a Freudian sense, it's kind of a retention expulsion thing because you're the exercise and this is me talking more broadly about this kind of parody of this kind of Aflo hipster culture, which is kind of about the idea that you go to exercise in order to exhibit kind of continence and self and restraint. Right. Um, and, and there's sort of there's this sort of uh, hermetic. There's this irony to it because it's this hermetic self-flagellation where you're trying to sort of purify yourself and validate your sexiness by forcing yourself to suffer. But you're doing so in an utterly decadent and self-interested way. So it's sort of like, I mean, just I mean, you could see a Saturday Live sketch where a bunch of people, you know, in Florence in the late Middle Ages join a flagellation cult and like argue over who has the nicest, you know, chain to whip themselves with. Right. Or like a vendor who's selling super fancy flagellation equipment. Um, and I think that's kind of part of what it's about. It's about this kind of expunging of the things that are wrong with you. Um, but in a way that's very morally oblivious to the things that are actually wrong. And also in a way that people kind of laugh at because they kind of want to m- make fun of the people who are in better shape than they are and are more attractive than they are to feel better about themselves. Who Because we also have a lot of internalized guilt about the fact that we don't exercise as much as but we that, should. That's, right? so I, it's like, it's, it's, this is really interesting. I mean, it's like... It, like I, I want to spend the rest of the hour talking about this. Honestly, I know we won't, but like th- because oh, yeah. there's, there's a couple there's there's a couple levels of false consciousness operating here. <laughs> I think it's important that that we unpack them. That you know affluent urban professional, you know, the kind of person who can afford a soul cycle class, but uh, like, um, is an aspirational category, you know, and that like, so if you take the conspiracy theory, soul cycle, uh, corporate PR argument, it's like, yeah, okay. They're a little funny, but like, these are the people you want to be. 
you know, and right. that's that is an interesting message. You could also get a little more Slavoj Žižek with it and be <laughs> like, this is how you know, this is how the sort of the affluent ruling class, this is how sort of elites uh, perpetuate ideology. You know <laughs> that uh, that this is how uh, ideology is injected into uh, the body, the civic body uh, through a bicycle seat. No, this is how um, uh, you you sort of defang the the ruling class right and like the the idea of the kind of the ruling class you know sort of being fed um this is something he talked about in his analysis of Titanic, which he, he uh, called a, a, a parable of the ruling class uh, feeding vampire-like on the, on the poor um, and being reinvigorated by them. As Kate Winslet like, goes down below decks to like, have her sexy dance party, that actually is, you know, is sort of lusty and exciting as opposed to the bloodless stuff that's happening up in the, in the ballroom and whatnot. Um, the, but that, like, you know, talking about Gandhi, talking about racism, like, this is how how, this is actually how uh, the ruling class sort of consumes um, uh, consumes these things, right? And it's and and um, that that finally, like, the, it could be a lot more raw, you know. Like the the thing with Soul Cycle, not just the sort of political implications, but like I uh, two two takes on it. One, like this is what it takes. This ridiculous, completely unnecessary level of effort. This sort of thing to go burn twelve hundred calories. And 45 minutes over the course of your lunch break instead of, I don't know, relaxing or eating lunch, reading a book, <laughs> like taking a walk, smoking a cigarette, for goodness sake, right? Like that, uh, that this is a necessary thing in order to perpetuate um, the sort of the economic realities, the like the, the experiential, the lived realities of being an affluent, you know, urban, what did you call them? Afflu hipsters or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> Afflo hipsters because they are they are athletes and because a hipster stereotype is someone who is not really in their physical body very much yeah right and is kind of dis sort of dissociated from it sort of like a clothes hanger of a person yeah is the sort of stereotypical insults that you would level at a hipster in comedy but I was suggesting that there is like an Afflo hipster who is an who is an also a comic trope uh, that is a sort of. Uh, you know, like a tank, and I, and it's a, a trope I, I find myself participating in, right? As, as like wearing tank tops in my spare time sometimes, <laughs> but the, although only in the confines of my garage for the most part. The other thing uh, is, the other thing is like, it's, you know, there are people who have to do hard physical work for a living because otherwise they won't be able to feed themselves, right? And that's, you know, that's maybe a more trenchant political commentary, right? Or there are people who can't afford to, you know, pay 45 bucks for, uh, for 45 minutes of, pay a dollar a minute for yeah. the privilege of burning whatever the, the, you know, caloric load is that you get to, uh, expunge for that. And that's like, so I, I don't know. I feel like there, there's a lot of, uh, I feel like there's yeah. a lot of layers here. And, and to Mark's point, it, it sort of feels institutional, actually. It feels like, a, in, in some sense, a defense of the old order uh, in, in a way that is not totally in keeping with the, the cutting edge of, of our, you know, of what's developing in our culture at the moment. Well, your anyway. culture, because you're a communist, but most people aren't <laughs> communists. <laughs> Uh, I, I wanted to, to toss in there also, like me and, me like, and Slavoj. 
<laughs> it's to the same degree that you might say that this is a kind of encoding of, of ideology by the upper class. You could also see it as the kind of pacification of the upper class, right? Like in, in the Burkean sense of the, the the rich as cattle, right? That we all kind of like the, the ideal situation in the Burkean setup, right, is that most rich people are docile and, and that the only thing worse than the rich people just kind of enjoying their wealth in private is them like doing something with it and so uh, what is it that uh that that the ideal situation is that you know we we should hope that the rich people go to spend their money on spin classes because then they're not spending them on political campaigns right like but at the same time we can then laugh at them for being kind of uh useless right and being kind of uh if not a a, a parasite at least you know a uh something that we kind of uh live off the largesse of because we can convince them to give us money for silly things um i don't know it's interesting there's a lot of i feel like it's one of those things where any any framework for analysis that you can bring to this situation you could use it to hash out the situation which i think is the mark of striking on something that's interesting potentially right like you could see it as a feminist critique right of, of kind of like the masculine is being interrogated here and being kind of parodied right um the, the man is the man who is uncomfortable with the soul cycle is kind of predatory but also isn't cool and can't participate even though he's smart right um and, and if he were less predatory maybe he would be in a higher status situation i don't know you could definitely kind of go around the horn and kind of look at different uh look at different kind of ways in which this dynamic is flushed out. You're right. We could, we could do a whole, we should do a whole other, you could do a whole other overthinking it podcast episode about the Saturday night live soul cycle sketch, right? Like in everything that it represents. But uh, Instead of uh, doing that, ladies and gentlemen, Billy Eilish. <laughs> so, <laughs> We mentioned a little bit earlier how Saturday Night Live is sort of a suite of little shows, each of which one of which might not be for you anymore. But because it can get subdivided, you might only watch the parts of it that you're interested in. And so thus, the many people who are interested in the cold opens who aren't necessarily us will go and flood to YouTube to watch them or see them on their social media feeds. Then the musical guests have also gone in that kind of direction. And I think one thing that you're seeing more often that is kind of exciting is really high production value presentations that that have a real kind of musical performance dimension on Saturday Night Live. Not just the idea that the artist performs live in front of a crowd, but the artist does theater in front of the crowd. And, and the one that really stuck out to me about this last year was Halsey painting live when she sang East Side, right? She did an upside down self-portrait while she was singing uh, in real time, which was pretty cool and exciting. And here in this same episode of Saturday Night Live, we have Billie Eilish do her best uh, dancing on the ceiling impression, right? Where she, but she, but with a different dimension to it as she's trapped in this kind of tiny room as this huge presence uh, as the room and the camera rotate. And then she kind of moves around the room as she sings her song, Bad Guy. I mean, I yeah, love that. I loved so much about this, about this performance. Yeah, you're right. It was sort of thematic. It's about, I mean, we talked about this, this song when we, we, um, we talked about this song uh, when we t- when we did the top top ten of the hot Billboard Hot 100 a couple episodes ago. Like, and I I really like this song because of the judo move that it does. She's not the bad girl; she's the bad guy, uh, which is a role. It's a powerful role. I mean, they make whole 
gritty origin story reboots about <laughs> about bad guys, right? Rather than you know just the bad girl being like a, a plot convenience, it it speaks of agency and intention intentionality. And I think she's I, I think it's an interesting kind of move to make uh, in the lyrics. And I just I loved how simple um, and how super effective the. Um, the bit was it was a bus it's a buster keaton bit where you turn the camera you know with the room now it was a little more than buster keaton because buster keaton would jump and then you would cut to a different room but uh, they had the whole room on a gimbal and it was rotating they, they you know pulled out at the end and you saw um you sort of saw how that worked that they had set it up on the stage there and that like uh rotating with the with the camera but it was so it was so simple it was so effective and it was done with such commitment they just did it and kind of let it stand you know and it wasn't um it wasn't super uh it it wasn't super remarked on it wasn't super it wasn't tarted up with anything it was like it was just a really good bit of theater a very simple statement that was sort of simple and and effective i've seen yeah. i've seen something like that from kanye actually chance i watched some of chances uh, uh the musical performance from the episode that uh was the most recent episode like it was it, it was good i thought it, it, the snl does have pretty good uh, we've come a long way from Ashley Simpson lip syncing to her, you know, uh, getting the wrong track as she lip synced to her own song. Anyway. So I, I enjoyed it as well. Uh, it was a neat technical thing. Um, but I have a complaint about it. It maybe has to do more with uh, my taste in music and how, like, once again, this isn't exactly for us, right? It's Which is that the uh, trap uh, breakdown at the end of the song um, when performed live, lacked uh, not just that piece, but also uh, other sort of you know what we talked about in the in the previous discussion. The, the the unique sonic elements of the recording were lost a little bit in the live performance of it, and it uh, it, it, it it felt lacking. Um, and it also reminded me that you know a lot of modern music these days is you know very much a product of the of, it's very much a product of the studio. Um, and not the sort of um, you know instrument and, uh, and and vocal performance driven type of thing that I grew up on that I like. But again, this isn't for me, so fine, I get it. You know, like the the, the kids that want to hear this, um, and if it's close enough to what they heard on Spotify, then you know that's all fine and good. But yes, uh, to, um, not to poo poo this too much. Like the technical uh, performance was was really great and uh, and fulfilling. Did anybody else yeah. feel that so the, the the sonic production was missing something? I don't. Yeah, I don't like. I don't love the sound of this song. I I like the kind of the whistling little hook that's in it, but uh, um, the, yeah, I don't know. I think it's 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 like Euphoria music or it's like Skins music. I imagine that like I, I think of these like overheated teen soap operas where they have you know a party with like that's lit in primary colors where you get like a kind of a fisheye point of view shot going through it that like represents drugs or something and it's supposed to be very enticing but also very sort of threatening and like you know it's a it's a coming of age thing and it's an indoctrination and it's a like a sexual deflowering and it's a like this this is music that is soundtracks for one of those uh you know for one of those scenes which is is kind of i don't know it's kind of a, a hack need sort of thing for 
in in my view anyway. Um, so I'm not, you know, I don't know. I'm not not a huge fan of the of the sound, but I, you know, I don't know. I, I still think even if it's not for me, she's sort of an interesting artist. Yeah, I feel like I wouldn't have been into this music even if I were the right age for it, just because I'm not cool enough. But I thought it was a cool performance. Well, didn't, she get, didn't she get invited to the parties that are lit in primary colors and you go through with a red solo cup in your hand, even though you're only 14 years old? And you like walk down, kind of floating on a steady cam down the hallway. And it's a long, dark hallway. It's a birth image. It's also very yonic. And there's like pulsing light at the end of it somehow that represents kind of thrusting or awakening or a kind of like sexual menace. But it's also like drawing you forward with every step you take and the drugs hit. <laughs> no, I would go to knockout game parties where if you said hello, someone would punch you in the face and then you would you would splice out the genes of a mouse so that it hor- had horrible deformities. Those, those were the knockout parties that I would go to. And what, what other d- child panics, right? I guess. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, are you kid, talking specifically kids, about these, the show? These kids these today, kids they're, they're, rainbow, they're rainbow parties. Definitely. <laughs> There was a great Saturday Night Live sketch about that. <laughs> there, I mean, a lot of these topics, there were great Saturday Night Live sketches on. I mean, I think there was one uh, There was one where it was like, uh, well, this is, again, this is a Bill Hader sketch. I find that what the algorithm does in practice to me, and I don't know if this is what it's done to other people, is that it's not necessarily going to force me to watch Saturday Night Live or really anything. But then if I find one of something, it's going to start recommending me all the others immediately, right? It's like, oh, so you've shown an interest in watching videos on kind of problems from, you know, junior mathlete competitions and kind of the working out like complex trigonometry problems. We're now going to recommend to you 40 videos of complex trigonometry problems. And this will last for about two days, right? And then it'll sort of ease off. And then every once in a while, they'll come around again and they'll be like, do you want another trigonometry problem? <laughs> and, then, uh, and then it'll be like, ah, that's okay. You know, you don't want it. We'll, we'll come back. We'll come back. Uh, but I've definitely gone down the Bill Hader rabbit hole. And there's definitely one where it's like, uh, teens are doing detergent to get high, right? It's uh, it's it's you know, there's a whole there's a whole library out there of stuff to appreciate for sure. Um, I'm just excited that that Saturday Night Live's musical guests are staying young and vital, and it's not like you know the Super Bowl halftime show where, where it's just become this paralyzingly safe thing now, which is not even safe. It's like they do everything they can to reduce the risk, and it's still risky. Huh. Uh, so, um, whereas so you, I don't yeah, think so, you yeah. may as well get some interesting artists up there, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, given that I don't you, think Adam Levine even wanted to be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> not, not judging by the look on his face, no. And what was the last time Adam Levine was on Saturday Night Live? He probably more recently than I think. Uh, oh, he was a host. He hosted Saturday Night Live uh, and delivered the monologue way, way back in 2013. Oh, so wow. I don't know if he's been on it since, but uh, uh, season 38. We're now in season 45. So. All right. So we got to yeah. we got to uh, call it. It's uh, it's that time. again. Oh, so let's get the uh, let's get the the, you know, piano music and the saxophone <laughs> going and like, thank you, everyone who did the overthinking podcast this weekend. Thank you for listening to it. Thank you, Peter Fenzel. Thank Woo! you. Markley. Love you, Bob. And visit us next week at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't deserve. Stuart, what are you doing here? Well, isn't that special?
Stand so, down by the river. <laughs> we could have talked about the old SNL, so I'm just kind of I had that all just like uh, canned up there. Now I'm letting it all out. Gotcha, the old gotcha. SNL hot tub. <laughs> hot hot tub. Oh man. And, and like the cut for time sketch is us talking for 20 minutes about the father son podcasting <laughs> microphone sketch, right? Oh, we didn't get funny. to talk about yeah, that. It's, oh, it's very funny. The one oh, most yeah. relevant to the thing we're yes. doing right now, and we didn't exactly. even get to it. Yes. <laughs> Sublimating male relationships through via technology. Yep. So, <laughs> done that for 10 years. Oh, man. And little chocolate donuts. It all comes together. 